Welcome back. This is the story of the Old Testament. We're walking through the narrative and the uh, story portions of uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Thank you for being with us. This is week number 16. Week number 16 for the week of April 16th through the 22nd. We're in Numbers chapters 10 through 17 and also reading Psalms 76 through 80. So we're in the book of Numbers still. This is kind of the, uh, this is where things get a little little, uh, well, tense or, you know, God's people complain, God's wrath is shown forth, but also God's mercy and grace shines forth. And, um, there's a lot of, a lot of big stories that happen here, uh, with Korah's rebellion, with, um, the wrath of God breaking forth against his people, um, with the people, you know, the people complain. We see they they send these spies into Canaan to spy out the land. Um, they come back, and ten of them say we can't do this. And Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can. The people rebel, and we see all this stuff happens. Moses's leadership is challenged. Uh, Moses's marriage to a Cushite woman in chapter twelve is challenged by Miriam and Aaron, and Miriam is is punished. Um, and put outside the camp for a certain time. Uh, Moses, of course, prays for the people. Israel is defeated. Um, and so we see both God's great justice and wrath, but also we see God's mercy shine forth at the same time. It's a fascinating set of stories, and it's a really, it's an important thing to grasp who God is and what it means Um for God's people to live with, with the Lord. Um, because eventually, right, they get, the people will get to this point, um, at the very end of chapter 17, after going through all of these things, they've opposed Moses, they've opposed God, they've opposed Aaron. And yet at the very end, the people of Israel say, behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? And the thing was, the Lord was disciplining them so that they could be driven to see that, that they cannot live with the holy God in their own strength. They must have the sacrifice. They must have God's grace. They must have his love. And so this calls them back to himself um, to trust in him and to look to him for all things. So this week, Numbers 10 through chapter 17. The first thing I want to read about is Numbers 11. Uh, this is about when the people complain. We we read there beginning in verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Gosh, I mean, you read this, right? Their misfortunes, right? They were slaves. They'd been brought out of redemption by no effort, no money of their own. They were just given redemption. God did it. And they're being, they're being mistreated. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to the Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called to because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So there's a rabble here and all these people are complaining and griping. 
Um, not a flattering picture, is it? This is from Alistair Begg. It's called The Cost of Complaining. He says this, There should be no place for grumbling in the Christian life. That was a lesson that Israel learned the hard way and learned slowly. After God freed them from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites received his law, were given his commands, and knew their destination. They eagerly set out to reach the promised land, but they hadn't gone very far at all, barely around the first bend in the road, before they began to complain. They wanted meat to eat instead of manna, and they even wished they were back in Egypt. When once they had thought God's daily provision of manna was a wonderful indication of his love for them, now they complained about having to eat the same old thing. Grumbling seems to be a small thing, but it is a sign that gratitude is missing. Whenever unbelief and a lack of thankfulness mark the lives of God's children, consequences are inevitable. We may not end up like the Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years, but our own grumbling is not without a cost. Do you remember the first excitement of your uh, newfound faith? Maybe you brought your, bought your first copy of the New Testament and thought all you were discovering was fantastic. You read it everywhere. Then perhaps something happened along the journey. Now it just seems, now it seems to be just the same old Bible and you wish God would do something more dramatic, something better. Do you remember a time when sharing your faith seemed to be an exciting privilege, but now it feels like a burden and a duty? Do you remember a time when you were overflowing in gratitude for the cross, but now you find you focus more on the ways that God has not led you along the paths or the places you would have preferred? When the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church, he reminded them of Israel's story as a warning. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 9-11 If we have faith in Christ, we've been set free from slavery to sin, even our complaining. We've been liberated by a sacrifice, the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, and we too have, been, have set out on a journey, not to Canaan, but to heaven. In light of that, God has given us both wonderful promises and necessary warnings. Do not presume upon his provision or grumble about the route he leads you on, but instead be filled with gratitude for all he has provided materially and spiritually. The cross lies behind you, heaven lies before you, and the spirit dwells within you. There is no need or excuse for grumbling. So, Again, the first thing is, right, God's people are grumbling. That's the place that we should not be either. We have so much to be grateful for. And that's why it's important for us to remember the gospel, isn't it? Our, in our sin first and then the gospel, how it, God has been so good to us. And when we do that, that should promote gratitude, thankfulness, instead of prideful uh, complaining. Well, they oppose Moses, Miriam, and Aaron do. And then in chapter 13, the spies are sent into Canaan, and they don't believe God's promise. This is uh, another story here, and this is called, this article here I'm going to read to you is called, And I Will Give You Rest. This is by Bradley Gray. He says this, Few, few verses are more recognizable than Hebrews 4, chapter, verse 12, where the writer compares God's written word to a two-edged sword. For the word of God, he says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. By this, he sets forth the self-evident nature of Scripture, which penetrates to the depths of who we are, 
God's word is living and active. It is full of energy and efficiently cuts through all of our biases and pretensions, leaving everyone naked and exposed. And if you're uncomfortable by the writer's premise, that's on purpose. The Hebrew writer wants his readers, us included, squirming at the profundity and authority contained in God's word, which is significant considering the manner in which he makes use of Old Testament scripture. Beginning in Hebrews 3.7 and continuing through 4.11, the writer quotes from a portion of Psalm 95 in order to demonstrate a critical truth about the faith. It's important to note that in illustrating this truth, the writer quotes from David, who himself is referencing Moses, all so that the church would understand more about the Lord Jesus. This is always the case when you read the scriptures. There are always multiple layers of truth and application that are happening all at once. As you read the Old Testament, for example, you are being brought face to face with the truth of things that have actually happened. That is, historical truth. Likewise, though you are also being brought face to face with the truth of things as they are being orchestrated and revealed by the one true sovereign Lord of all things. That is, redemptive truth. Flipping through the pages of your Bible is not like flipping through an ancient history textbook. The pages of Scripture relay God's grand story of how from before the foundation of the world He has made a way for wicked sinners to be saved from eternal wrath. All of which to say that while the writer's words in Hebrews 4, 12-13 might appear disjointed from the previous section, they serve as an indispensable epilogue which substantiates all of the preceding assertions. For example, it's no small thing to take note of how the writer introduces the Old Testament passage on which he is going to elaborate. Therefore, As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This, of course, is a direct quotation of David from Psalm 95. But rather than say, as David says, the writer attests, as the Holy Spirit says, which reveals the way in which he understood the authority of the scriptures. That is, he sees it as a living and active thing. It's not an anthology of loosely related myths that inspire us to greater moral living. Rather, it is the revelation of God's undisturbed will and determination to redeem his creatures from certain ruin. This Hebrew church, therefore, was to read the words of David as if they were written for them, as if God was speaking directly to them, which, of course, he was through his word. The event at the heart of Hebrews 3 and 4 is one of the most monumental turning points in Israel's history, the awful rebellion of God's people at Kadesh Barnea. After the miraculous deliverance of Jehovah on behalf of his people in the Exodus and at the Red Sea, they are brought to the borderlands of Canaan, the very land they were promised to inherit. But rather than proceed by faith, the Israelites are convinced at the word of ten spies that this land would be impossible to occupy. And what's more, it became the prevailing belief that it would have been better for them if they had never left Egypt. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, they cry. Would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Rather than continue clinging to the words of God's promise, they'd rather go back into tyranny, into bondage. No wonder God says that he was provoked with that generation. As a result, of course, that generation is forbidden from entering the land of promise and cursed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And the only thing that stopped them from entering the very land of God's covenanted word, their own unbelief. The people didn't believe that they would be able to occupy the land God told them he would give them. And it's not as though they didn't have an array of reasons to believe God would be good to his word. They most definitely did. 
like the plagues, the exodus, the Red Sea, the pillars of cloud and fire, the manna, etc. This is why Caleb and Joshua speak so boldly to all the people in hopes of reassuring them of the Lord's power and presence for them. But the people were having none of it. They had been overwhelmed by what the Hebrew writer calls an evil, unbelieving heart, which led an entire generation to fall away from the living God. By abandoning God's word of promise through sheer disbelief, the people of Israel shut themselves out of God's land of promise. And the point is, those Hebrew Christians were faced with the same dilemma. Their day was one of tension, trepidation, and turmoil. The onslaught of hardship and persecution no doubt made it easy for them to question God's power and presence and promise. The writer's inquiry and purpose, then, is clear. Are you going to let the same debacle of disbelief happen again as it did at Kadesh Barnea? Are you going to repeat the same fiasco of unfaith as your forefathers did? Our writer, R.C.H. Linsky, comments, does the very thing that David did. He uses the unbelief and the judgment of the Israelites in the wilderness as a warning for the Jewish believers of his time. By using David's psalm, our writer is able to double the warning, for the psalm repeats Moses' account. This church found themselves at a crossroads, which was accompanied by the very real risk of forfeiting Jesus' rest by stiffening themselves to God's word and spirit. As the writer insists, the same promise, the same good news that was on the table at Kadesh Barnea was still in effect for them. It was the invitation to have a share in Christ and enter the rest of God. Therefore, the writer declares, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have reached, failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. What does he mean by rest, though? This question has eluded some in the past, but I do not think it should be quite so complicated. The word rest appears ten times in a mere eleven verses in Hebrews 4, with each occurrence carrying with it the notion of being settled. It is suggestive of a finished work, a job well done. By way of example, the writer quotes Genesis 2-2 to illustrate what he means. After creating the universe and speaking all things into being, God rested. Not because he was weary, but in order to establish a pattern of rest for his creatures. The necessity of a day of rest was created in you by the Creator himself, as a reminder that we are not independent beings, and also as a token of the eternal rest that, would one day bring, that he would one day bring into the world. But as was previously mentioned, the truth of God's rest has multiple layers to it. For the people of Israel at Sinai, the rest of God was the rest of the Sabbath, which put them in the rhythm of their creator as they were called to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. For the people of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, the rest of God was the literal rest afforded to them in the land of promise, where they would finally be settled and the exodus would be finished. For the people of Israel in King David's day, the rest of God was a symbolic rest afforded to them in the promise of the new covenant. For the Hebrew Christians, the rest of God was the assurance and promise of rest gifted to them in Jesus' passion and resurrection. And the point is, as the Hebrew writer shows, that the rest of God is fulfilled and culminated and found nowhere else but in Christ. The rest of the Sabbath and the rest of the land of promise were but the echoes of the true and better rest that's found in the Son. Just like God the Father rested after the work of creation was done, so too did God the Son rest after the work of crucifixion was done. It is finished, 
was his declaration from the cross, after which he entered into his rest, having tasted death for everyone and having finished the work of reconciliation. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus made sure that there was nothing left for us to do in order to enter into his rest. All was done. All is finished. It's only by believing, then, that anyone, at any point in time, enters into God's rest. By believing in God's word of promise, Israel was called to enter into the land of promise. By believing in God's word of promise, Israel was called to cling to God's covenantal blessings. By believing in God's word of promise, the church was called to hold fast their original confidence firm to the end. Accordingly, the writer demonstrates that the only thing that ever shuts anyone out from God's rest is unbelief. Likewise, the only thing that brings us into God's rest is belief. You and I are faced with a similar dilemma. How do we enter into the rest of God? What's the requirement? What's the bar? Is there something we have to do? Do we have to work for it? Do we have to labor for it? You might be given to think that way if you take a brief glance at Hebrews 4.11, where the writer confoundingly says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. How do you strive to enter into rest? Doesn't the striving negate the resting? The writer frames his point this way on purpose, though, because the hardest thing you and I will ever be called to do is to believe that it is done already, that it really and truly is finished. It actually takes striving to believe that all that's required for entry into the rest of God's righteousness is simple belief. To be convinced in our hearts, Martin Luther attests, that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. The good news of God's everlasting rest is the promise that's given to us in the person and work of Christ, and the only stipulation for entering that rest is belief. This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is his commandment, St. John likewise affirms, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. That news is often greeted with the objection, well, that just sounds too good to be true. That sounds too easy. But by objecting to that news, we not only demonstrate our unbelief and disobedience, we as the Hebrew writer have shown, rehearse the debacle at Kadesh Barnea all over again. Thinking that the rest of God is unfinished and that we are required to finish it is the epitome of unbelief. To believe the lie that you and I must do something, must fulfill a condition in order to secure our entrance into God's rest, is the same thing as believing that Egyptian bondage is preferable to God's deliverance. In so doing, you've hardened yourself to the word of God and fallen away from his promise. A greater Joshua, namely Jesus, Linsky writes, brings us this rest, and he does that by faith alone. Christ really did it all. It really is finished. His promise of rest still stands, and it goes something like this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The only requirement to enter into God's rest, both in the here and now and in the hereafter, is to believe in the it is finishedness of the cross. There we go. So we have the call to trust in God um, and to look to him. But of course we know God's people still complain. There was judgment. And eventually we have the Korah's Rebellion, right, which is an astounding um, story. Um, the uh, earth opens its mouth, swallows their household. They go down into the pit and to Sheol alive. 
But even that doesn't stop Israel. We read in uh, verse 40, uh, eventually the, the people complain and grumble again. They say, you have killed the people of the Lord. Well, who killed the people of the Lord? It was the Lord. He did the judgment. But then in verse 47, we read this, that, um, well, let's read the earlier um, uh, verse 43. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. This is the last thing we'll read. It's a Spurgeon sermon, and it's called The High Priest Standing Between the Dead and the Living. That's quite an image. Let's think about this story and uh, the powerful truths it contains. Spurgeon, uh, this is Spurgeon. We have attentively read the passage which contains the account of this transaction. The authority of Moses and Aaron had been disputed by an ambitious man belonging to an elder branch of the family of Levi who had craftily joined himself with with himself certain factious spirits of the tribe of Reuben who themselves also sought to attain to power by their supposed rights through Reuben, the firstborn. By a singular judgment from heaven, God had proved that rebellion against Moses was a mortal sin. He had bidden the earth open its mouth and swallow up all the traitors, and both Levites and Reubenites had disappeared, covered in a living grave. One would have imagined that from this time the murmurings of the children of Israel would have ceased, or that at least, even should they have daring enough to gather in in little mutinous knob, yet their traitorous spirit never would have come to so great a height as to develop to develop itself in the whole body openly before the Lord's tabernacle. Yet so it was. On the very morrow after that solemn transaction, the whole of the people of Israel gathered themselves together and with unholy clamors surrounded Moses and Aaron, charging them with having put to death the people of the Lord. Doubtless they hinged this accusation upon the fact that whenever the people would not have been destroyed, they say, he, they say had he prayed upon this occasion, the people would not have been destroyed. The earth would not have opened their mouth, and they would not have been swallowed up. They would thus attempt to prove the charge which they had brought against these two great men of God. Can you picture the scene now in your mind's eye? There is the infuriated mass of people. The spectacle of such a crowd as I see before me in this hall is overpowering. And were all this multitude in tumult against two men, the two might have sufficient cause for trembling. But this would be but as a grain of sand compared with that inconceivable number who were then gathered. A large part of those three millions would come up in one vast, tumultuous host. Whatever was proposed by any leader of the mob would no doubt have instantly been carried into effect, and had it not been for the awful majesty which surrounded the person of Moses, no doubt they would have torn him to pieces on the spot. But just as they are rushing up like the waves of the sea, the cloudy pillar which hung above the tabernacle descends and envelops in its fold, as with a protecting baptism, the whole of the sacred place. Then in the center of this cloud, there blazed out that marvelous light called the Shekinah, which was the indication of the presence of him who cannot be seen, but whose glory may be manifest. The people stand back a little. Moses and Aaron fall upon their faces in prayer. 
They beg of God that he would spare the people, for they had heard a voice coming out of the excellent glory saying, get thee up from the people that I may destroy them in a moment. This time God's blow goes forth from his word with that destroy for the destroying angel begins to mow down the outer ranks of the vast tumultuous hosts. There they fall one upon another. Moses, with his undimmed vision, looking over the heads of the people, can see them begin to fall beneath the scythe of death. Up, saith Aaron, up, and take with thee thy censer, snatch fire from off the holy altar, and run among the people, for the plague is begun. Aaron, a man of a hundred years of age, fills his censer, runs along as if he were a youth, and begins to swing it towards heaven with holy energy, feeling that in his hand was the life of the people. And when the incense is accepted in heaven, death stops in his work. On this side are heaps upon heaps of corpses slain by God's avenging angel. And there stand the crowd of living people, living only because of Aaron's intercession, living simply because he had waved that censer and burned that incense for them. Otherwise, had the angel smitten them all, they would all have lain together as the leaves of the forest lie in autumn, dead and sear. I think you can now I think you can now in your imaginations picture the scene. I desire to use the picture before us as a great spiritual type of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, has done for that erring multitude of the sons of men who like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. We shall look at Aaron this morning in a fivefold character. The whole scene is typical of Christ and Aaron as he appears before us in each character is a most magnificent picture of the Lord Jesus. First, let us look at Aaron as the lover of the people. You know who it is to, to whom we give that name of lover of my soul. You will be able to see in Aaron the lover of Israel and Jesus the lover of his people. Aaron deserves to be very highly praised for his patriotic affection for a people who were the most rebellious and stiff-necked that ever grieved the heart of a good man. You must remember that in this case he was the aggrieved party. The clamor was made against Aaron and against Mo uh, Moses, yet it was Moses and Aaron who interceded and saved the people. They were the offended ones. They were the saving ones. Aaron had a special part in the matter, for no doubt the conflict of Korah especially was rather against the priesthood, which belonged exclusively to Aaron, than against the prophetical dispensation which God had granted to Moses. Aaron must have felt that when he saw Korah there and the 250 men, all of them with their censers, that the plot was against him, that they wished to strip from him his mitre, to take from, his, take from him his embroidered vest and the glittering stones that shone upon his breast, that they wished to reduce him to the position of a common Levite and take to themselves his office and his dignity. Yet forgetting himself, he does not say, let them die. I will wait a while till they have been sufficiently smitten. But the old man with generous love hastened into the midst of the people, though he was himself the aggrieved person. Is not this the very picture of our sweet Lord Jesus? Had not sin dishonored him? Was he not the eternal God, and did not sin therefore conspire against him as well as against the eternal Father and the Holy Spirit? Was he not, I say, the one against whom the nations of the earth stood up and said, Let us break his bands asunder and cast his cords from us? Yet he, our Lord Jesus, laying aside all thought of avenging himself, becomes the savior of his people. So here we see, first of all, that, that like Aaron, Jesus Christ is a lover of his people. But secondly, but now Spurgeon writes this, but I now pass on to a second view of Aaron as he stands in another character. Let us now view Aaron as the great propitiator. <laughs> 
Wrath had gone out from against from God against the people on account of their sin, and it is God's law that his wrath shall never stay unless a propitiation be offered. The incense which Aaron carried in his hand was the propitiation before God. From the fact that God saw in that perfume the type of that richer offering, which our great high priest in this very day offer is this very day offering before the throne. Aaron as the propitiator is to be looked at first as bearing in his censure that that which was necessary for the propitiation. He did not come empty-handed. Even though God's high priest, he must take the censer, he must fill it with the ordained incense, made with the ordained materials, and then he must light it with the sacred fire from off the altar, and with that alone. With the censer in his hand, he is safe. Without it, Aaron might have died as well as the rest of the people. The qualification of Aaron partly lay in the fact that he held the censer, and that that censer was full of sweet odors which were acceptable to God. Behold then Christ Jesus as the propitiator for his people. He stands this day before God with his censer smoking up towards heaven. Behold the great high priest, see him this day with his pierced hands and the head that once was crowned with thorns. Mark how the marvelous smoke of his merits goeth up forever and ever before the eternal throne. Then we turn now to the third thing about Aaron, the intercessor. Let me explain what I mean. As the old Westminster annotations say upon this passage, the plague was moving among the people as the fire moveth along a field of corn. There it came. It began in the extremity. The faces of men grew pale and swiftly on. On it came and in vast heaps they fell till some 14,000 had been destroyed. Aaron wisely puts himself just in the pathway of the plague. It came on, cutting down all before it, and there stood Aaron the interposer, with arms outstretched and censer swinging towards heaven, interposing himself between the darts of death and the people. If there be darts that must fly, he seemed to say, let them pierce me, or let the incense shield both me and the people. Death, saith he, art thou coming on thy pale horse. I arrest thee, I throw back thy steed upon upon his haunches. Art thou coming, thou skeleton king? With my censer in my hand, I stand before thee. Thou must march over my body. Thou must empty my censer. Thou must destroy God's high priest, ere thou canst destroy this people. Just so it was with Christ. Wrath had gone out against us. The law was about to smite us. The whole human race must be destroyed. Christ stands in the forefront of the battle. The stripes must fall on me, he cries. The arrows shall find a target in my breast. On me, Jehovah, let thy vengeance fall. And he receives that vengeance. And afterwards, upspringing from the grave, he waves the censer full of the merit of his blood and bids this wrath and fury stand back. On which side are you today, sinner? Is God angry with thee, sinner? Are thy sins forgiven? Say, art thou unpardoned? Art thou abiding still an heir of wrath and an inheritor of death? Oh, then would thou that thou wert on the other side of Christ. If thou dost believe on Christ, then let me ask thee, dost thou know that thou art completely saved? No wrath can ever reach thee. No spiritual death can ever destroy thee. No hell can ever consume thee. And why? What is thy guard? What is thy protection? I see the tear glistening in thine eye as thou sayest, there is nothing between me and hell save Christ. There is nothing between me and Jehovah's wrath, save Christ. There is nothing between me and instant destruction, save Christ. 
but he is enough with the, he with the censer in his hand god's great ordained priest he is enough so christ like aaron is the interposer but fourthly like aaron he is also the savior it was aaron's censer that saved the lives of that great multitude if he had not prayed the plague had not stayed, and the Lord would have consumed the whole company in a moment. As it was, you perceive there were some 14,700 that died before the Lord. The plague had begun its dreadful work, and only Aaron could stay it. And now I want you to notice with regard to Aaron, that Aaron, and especially the Lord Jesus, must be looked upon as a gracious Savior. It was nothing but love that moved Aaron to wave his censer. The people could not demand it of him. Had they not brought a false accusation against him, and yet he saves them. It must have been love and nothing but love. Say, was there nothing? Was there anything in the voices of that infuriated multitude which could have moved Aaron to stay the plague from before them? Nothing. Nothing in their character, nothing in their looks, nothing in their treatment of God's high priest, and yet he graciously stands in the breach and saves them from the devouring judgment of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, if Christ Christ hath saved us, he is a gracious Savior indeed. Often, as we think of the fact that we are saved, the tear falls down our cheek, for we can never tell why Jesus hath saved us. What was there in you that could merit esteem or give the Creator delight? T'was even so, Father, you must ever sing, because it seemed good in thy sight. There is no difference between the glorified in heaven and the doomed in hell, except the difference that God made of his own sovereign grace. Whatever difference there may be between Saul the Apostle and Elymas the Sorcerer has been made by infinite sovereignty and undeserved love. Paul might still have remained Saul of Tarsus and might have become a damned fiend in the bottomless pit, had it not been for free sovereign grace, which came out to snatch him as a brand from the burning. O sinner, thou mayest, thou sayest, there is no reason in me why God should save me, but there is no reason in any man. Thou hast no reason in me, thou hast uh, no good point, nor hath any man. There is nothing in any man to commend him to God. We are all such sinners that hell is our deserved portion. And if any of us be saved from going down into the pit, it is God's undeserved sovereign bounty that doth it, and not any merits of ours. Jesus Christ is a most gracious savior so he's a savior but then let's look here lastly aaron is the divider aaron the anointed one stands here on that side is death on this side life the boundary between life and death is that one man where his incense smokes the air is purified where it is where it smokes not the plague reigns with unmitigated fury there are two sorts of people here this morning we forget the distinction of rich and poor. We know it not here that we know it not here. There are two sorts of people. We forgo the distinction of, lear- of the learned and unlearned. We care not for that here. There are two sorts here, and these are the living and the dead, the pardoned, the unpardoned, the saved, and the lost. What divides the true Christian from the unbeliever? Some think it is that the Christian takes the sacrament, the other not. It is not division. There be men who have gone to hell with sacramental bread in their mouths. Others may imagine that baptism makes the difference, and indeed it is the outward token. The baptismal pool is the means by which we show to the world that we are buried in Christ's grave, in type that we are dead to the world and buried in Christ. 
We rise up from it in testimony that we desire to live in newness of life by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He who is baptized does in that way cross the Rubicon. He draws the sword and throws away the scabbard. He is the baptized one and has a sign that can never be eradicated from him. He is dedicated through that baptism to Christ, but it is but an outward sign. For many have there been who have been baptized with water, who do not having who not having the baptism of the Holy Ghost have afterward been baptized in the fiery sufferings of eternal torment. No, no, the one division, the one great division between those who are God's people and those who are not, is Christ. A man in Christ is a Christian. A man out of Christ is dead in trespasses and sins. He that believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ is saved. He that believeth not is lost. Christ is the only divider between his people and the world. On which side then art thou today, my hearer? Come, let the question go individually to you. Young men, on which side are you? Are you Christ's friend and servant, or are you his enemy? Old man, thou with the gray head yonder, thou hast but a little while to live. On which side art thou? Art thou my master's blood-bought one? Or art thou still a lost sheep? Art thou, matron, thou who art busied, perhaps, even now in thy thoughts upon thy children? Think not of them for a moment. On which side art thou? Hast thou believed? Hast thou been born again? Or art thou still in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity? Ye that stand yonder, let the question penetrate your thick rank now. Where are you? Can you take the name of Christ upon your lips and say, Jesus is my, thine and thou art mine. Thy blood and righteousness are my hope and trust. For if not, my hearer, thou art among the spiritually dead and thou shalt soon be among the damned unless divine grace prevent and change and renew thee. Please remember, brothers and sisters, that as Christ is the great divider now, so will he be in the day of judgment. Do you never think of that? He shall divide from them the one from the other, as the shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. It is the shepherd's person that divideth the sheep from the goats. He stands between them, and in that last day of days, for which all other days were made, Christ shall be the great divider. There the righteous clad in white, and songs triumphant, glorified with him, and there the lost, the unbelieving, the fearful, the abominable. What divides them from you, bright host? Nothing but the person of the Son of Man, on whom they look and weep and mourn and wail because of him. That is the impenetrable barrier that shall shut out the damned from eternal bliss. The gate which may let you in now will be the fiery gate which shall shut you out hereafter. Christ is the door of heaven. O oh, dreadful day when that door shall be shut, when that door shall stand before you and prevent you entering into the felicity which you shall then long for when you cannot enter into it. Oh, on which side shall I be when all these transitory things are done away with, when the dead have risen from their graves, when the great congregation shall stand upon the land and upon the sea, when every valley and every mountain and every river and every sea shall be crowded with multitudes standing in thick array? Oh, when he shall say, separate my people, thrust in the sickle, for the harvest of the world is ripe. My soul, where shalt thou be? Shalt thou be found among the lost? Shall the dread trumpet send thee down to hell? while the voice that rends thine ear shall call after thee, Depart from me, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, into everlasting fire and hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. O oh, grant that I may not be there, but among thy people may I stand. So may it be. May we be on the right hand of the judge to all eternity, and remember that forever and ever Christ will be the divider. He shall stand between the lost and the saved. He shall interpose forever between the damned and the glorified. 
Again, I put it to you. Give me your ears just for one moment while I speak. What say you, sirs? Shall this congregation be rent in twain? The hour is coming when our wills and wishes shall have no forge. God will divide the righteous from the wicked then, and Christ shall be the dread division. I say, are you prepared? Are we prepared to be separated eternally? Husband, are you prepared to renounce today your wife forever? Are you prepared when the clammy sweat gathers on her brow to give her the last kiss and say, Adieu, adieu, I shall never meet with thee again. Child, son, daughter, are you ready to go home and sit down at the table of your mother? And ere you eat, say, Mother, I now forswear you once for all. I am determined to be lost, and as, and as thou art on the side of Christ, and I will never love him, I will part with you forever. Surely the ties of kinship make us long to meet in another world, and do we wish to meet in hell? Do you wish all of you to meet there, a grim company to lie in the midst of the, of the flames? Will you abide in the devouring fire and dwell in everlasting burning? No, your wishes are that you may meet in heaven, but you cannot unless you meet in Christ. You cannot meet in paradise unless you meet in him. Oh, that now the grace of God were poured upon you, that you might come unto Jesus. And that's our hope, to come to Christ um, as our Savior, our interceder, our uh, priest, our divider, the one that we look to. And this story right here is a powerful illustration of the division and the separation and the salvation of God's people. Okay, well, that's all we have today. Um, Keep reading the Old Testament. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be continuing in Numbers next week, um, plodding through, continuing going forth. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm always happy to hear from you, and I always enjoy that. Um, It encourages me uh, to know that you're interacting and and thinking about what we're reading. Um, Thank you for listening to this again. Take care, and we'll be back next week. God bless.